Welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a show about military and defense news designed for serious people who love their country more than they love their political party. It's a show for moderates who are tired of their news being from the left or the right or being over the top and scary. I fully understand how frustrated most Americans feel at how divided we are, and I am the very opposite of most news organizations who often write articles that are too alarming. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a -a twice-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both his country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. If you were to ask anyone who lived in Oak Ridge during the nine years that I owned that weekly newspaper, they would tell you that I sought to downplay controversy, I worked hard to understate headlines, and I did my absolute best to never create panic, which is a terrible way to sell newspapers, but a responsible way for a media outlet to act. I plan to do these same things with my podcast. I love the news, and we need the news but we need to have news that's less over the top. News that folks don't dread to hear because it's too scary, and news that isn't so blown out of proportion and fear-based that it was clearly written to be shared and scare the devil out of people. The news shouldn't be a game intended to grab eyeballs and monetize dollars. It's an absolute fact that our democracy doesn't work if we don't have informed voters. And since we're talking about the news and informed voters, let me say this. I'm convinced that foreign policy decisions are the most important decisions that we face as a country. They lead to greater consequences on the world stage, and they can lead to tragic deaths, either because we shouldn't have intervened somewhere, or perhaps because we should have. America is the world's leading power, and we mostly lead the world from a position of moral authority, showing other countries how they should behave in regards to ethics, restraint, and providing freedom for their citizens. Foreign policy decisions can be tragic and heartbreaking, and it's important that we get them right. It's also crucial that when we get them wrong, such as when we did in the Vietnam War, then the faster we can course correct, the faster we can reduce how many lives we lose. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians seeking their own personal gain try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. I will also not remain silent when we have media organizations doing great harm to our country by scaring people or creating panic. We face great challenges as a country, but America has stood together for more than 240 years and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So, let's get a little better informed, 
and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about before they listen too long. And I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience on this intro. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool intro that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid, to something we can build a foundation from, and that's what I'm offering. And with that, let's get started. This is the September 6th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please consider subscribing. At a minimum, subscribe to the podcast through whatever channel you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. All of my podcasts are free, but if you really want to be a rock star and support what we're doing, you can sign up at my Substack for $5 a month. Not only will that help encourage and sustain what we're doing here, but it will also get you the Tuesday post on Tuesday. As a reminder, those Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day unless you're a paid subscriber. That way, it will encourage folks to support what we're doing here if they can, but also doesn't really penalize you if you can't make that $5 a month payment, and most are just waiting one extra day for the content. We're going to begin this episode with some news about the war in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but I'm really excited um, later in this episode, if you stick around, we're going to have a couple of different parts of the episode that deal with how to counter China, and there's some really great ideas that I wanted to share from a couple of different perspectives, so I think you guys are really going to enjoy that as well. And then, of course, we'll end with the typical motivation and wisdom section that we do every single week. The first item I wanted to point out from Ukraine was the offensive that's happening down in Kherson. We've talked at length the last couple of weeks or more about a potential offensive down there, and it's definitely happening. There's still um, reporting, Reporters are still trying to figure out exactly how far those advances are happening. The Ukrainian government is rightly being pretty uh, quiet about what uh, axes they're advancing down and how much, um, I guess, penetration they've made to date. So it doesn't appear to be like massive blitzkrieg-type movement, but they're definitely kilometers deep in multiple areas. I've got a link to a Washington Post story that talks a bit about that, but the surprising thing from that Washington Post story is, you may remember in the last episode, or perhaps it was the one before that, I had shared a report that the U.S. had suggested to Ukraine not to advance both in the southern part toward Kherson, which of course leads to Crimea or the Crimean Peninsula, but at the same time to not do an advance in the east, which apparently the Ukrainians wanted to do, and that's in the Donbass region. I had pointed out that that's kind of a big deal that the U.S. is advising and admitting they're advising the Ukrainians, but uh, what has come out is that the Ukrainians are apparently advancing in the east in the Donbass region, as well as in the south toward Kherson. So it appears that, um, if I had to guess, that um, the Russian resistance is not as firm or strong as uh, Russia had certainly hoped, 
And I know a lot of times in warfare, things can sometimes sometimes literally begin with as simple as, you know, patrols and probing actions, and then you find softness or weakness, or maybe the enemy, you know, basically flees. And it appears that, you know, that that's just my... I'm just throwing out a possibility, but certainly Ukraine wanted advance in the east and the Donbass region, and the U.S. suggested they they not for fear that the Ukrainians would get overextended with their supply lines. But the Ukrainian leadership has either decided that we're going to do it either anyway, or they have literally just seen such weak resistance that the forces are just starting to push forward. There are obviously Ukrainian civilians, especially in the Kharkiv region that are behind enemy lines, and I'm sure the Ukrainians seriously want to push forward and try to liberate these uh, folks. Um, there are still all kinds of Russian atrocities happening, people disappearing, um, people being murdered, raped, etc. So, still a little too soon to see how far either of those advances have progressed to, but definitely things happening in the east and the south. We'll certainly keep you updated about that in the next episode on Friday. The second item I wanted to cover today regarding the war in Ukraine is there was some breaking news in the New York Times that declassified U.S. intelligence says that Russia is turning to North Korea to buy millions of artillery shells and rockets. And of course, this brings up all kinds of questions about whether Russia can supply its own army, how it's doing as far as um, you know producing additional ammunition. They've obviously been firing unbelievable amounts of artillery in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region. And of course, the multiple launch rocket system rockets, the HIMARS, the Ukrainians have been taking out just numerous uh, ammunition dumps, um, places where ammunition was stored. And so I guess this is finally really starting to hit the Russians. And well, a lot of analysts have been commenting that the North Korean ammunition is, is probably... I don't want to say substandard, but I don't know the other word, but it's certainly not first-grade ammunition, and much of it is probably dated. So this is not a good look for Russia, and it's probably not going to be very effective in the long term, but definitely a sign that Russia is starting to gasp, if you will, as it tries to replenish its arms in this war in which they're basically overextended and have been, you know, heavily punished and weakened their um, attacking forces. So not only are those forces depleted, not only is morale low, but they're apparently now struggling to be resupplied with ammunition. And with the ammunition they get, if it comes from North Korea, it's going to not be the uh, highest quality. So that's um, something I definitely wanted to highlight for you guys think that's something we'll uh, certainly keep an eye on. The third thing that I wanted to highlight today regarding the war in Ukraine was General Barry McCaffrey had an interview recently, and we've talked a lot about the nuclear plant and how finally we got some international inspectors in there. I wanted to get just a, a little bit more information in on that since that's how the word nuclear is just so scary, but uh, General McCaffrey said um, that there's basically 20,000 pounds of fissile material there in six nuclear reactors. He said it was a little safer than what happened in Chernobyl, the disaster there, and I'll go into that in just a second. And he said that if there was a meltdown, it would look like Japan's Fukushima. 
And so I wanted to do two quick things regarding Chernobyl and Fukushima, just so we have some um, possible uh, things to compare this to. And again, that interview is, it's a short interview. It's in the source notes if you want to hear what he said before you listen to this. So briefly, what happened at Chernobyl? So Chernobyl was in Ukraine, actually. And back in the 80s, uh, 1986, they had a, obviously a disaster. It was a nuclear accident. And they were doing a test. During the test, they were testing like an emergency power system. Had an issue there and ended up leading to obviously a meltdown. But in my mind, I thought Chernobyl had killed. I wasn't sure how many, but, you know, you think the word Chernobyl and you think just horrible things. But um, with the meltdown and the fire, the amount of people affected wasn't as large as I initially thought. It was a uh, about a 6.2 mile exclusion zone. About 50,000 people were evacuated. In the end, um, at least during the immediate emergency response, about 250 workers were hospitalized. About 130 exhibited symptoms of acute radiation syndrome. But in the end, fewer than 100 people died there. And while it obviously caused some long-term issues for the site, it, it wasn't as bad as, you know, I think all of us in the West think. Not that any of this is, you know, good. And I'm sure that I'll probably get feedback that how could you possibly downplay this? Well, the only reason I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay it, but what I'm trying to do is just put things in perspective that a lot of times media in the West, I feel like they try to scare people. And the reality is it wasn't like 50,000 people died or something. It's I'm just trying to put it in perspective. So in the end, the damage from that was about $70 billion when you adjust it for inflation. And so these are just some rough numbers. That was Chernobyl. Now let's go to the, the next thing that General McCaffrey mentioned, which is Fukushima. That disaster, this happened in 2011. There was an earthquake nearby. There was a massive tsunami wave that came through. It damaged the uh, nuclear site. In this situation, so again, this was in 2011, there was total people evacuated was about 154,000 evacuated. And uh, they had some workers who were burned and some folks who did die from that cancer. But total casualties were, so one confirmed cancer death, 16 with physical injuries due to hydrogen explosions, and a couple of people with radiation burns. And I'm sure that long term there were some folks exposed that, you know, some of the workers that will probably show long term consequences. But again, I'm just putting all this out there just to put it in perspective and you know, don't beat me up too bad in the email replies, but I would rather put things in perspective than overhype things and have, you know, not only Americans scared, but basically because people feel powerless and because things seem too scary, that causes disengagement. And so that's not good for either America or the world. And so I'm just trying to put this in perspective. You can research both of those on your own. They're easily items you can research on Google and find loads of information about. You know, it's funny, just giving you guys a little bit of a look underneath the hood, so to speak. The reason I did this segment was last, I believe it was the last episode, when we found out that Ukraine wouldn't allow the inspectors in through in, to enter the uh, area through the Russian side because they were worried about a sovereignty issue. And I thought, man, that's just kind of weird. If this thing is so scary, so unstable, et cetera, et cetera, 
who cares about a sovereignty issue, especially for land that you plan to retake. But then the other thing is the head inspector arrives, and it was kind of my impression that once he got there, he wasn't leaving under any circumstances because they tried so hard to get in there. But then he gets in there, and he's there for a very short time. It was like like less than a day, if I recall correctly, most a day or two, but it wasn't long. It might have even been hours. And then he leaves, and they just leave a couple of inspectors there. So in my mind, I'm like, man, that's just... Like, how do, how do you go from something that's so scary, according to Western media, to we get this head inspector in and some of his small team, and then he's leaving? And so it's, I just kind of started putting things together, and it just it seems pretty obvious now that things are more stable than initially had been presented. So hopefully, looking at the historical uh, past of Chernobyl and Fukushima will kind of help put some of this in perspective. And uh, I don't mean to downplay the risk, but it just seems to me that I think this was a story that got a little bit overhyped. And um, there you go. There's hopefully a little balance on the issue. Let's move from the war in Ukraine to China. As I had said, there were a couple of uh, big things I want to get into regarding China. and But I have to first mention that the UN has finally re- released a longer-awaited report about China's human rights abuses. And this has taken months and months and months and months of uh, research by the UN, including a tour there, and the the Chinese allowed them to see certain parts, but they tried to spin this whole thing. But the UN has finally released a report, and it criticizes the way that China has abused its Uyghur population, which is a minority population there. Their abuses include what may constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity, including forced sterilization, coerced labor, or what we used to call slavery, unreasonable surveillance, and the destruction of religious and cultural heritage, or just some of the offenses. China has written like a 131-page response, and they say that uh, they are a, quote, shining example end quote, of human rights progress. They called the places that these workers are vocational educational training centers, which I don't have to tell you is uh, a load of uh, inaccuracies, I guess. And so, um, at any rate, and then the Chinese went on to attack America's flaws to try to distract from its own. So I did want to mention that. I've got a link to it, and you can find that easily in several places online. So, not that any of this is a surprise with the way that China has suppressed uh, democracy and freedom in Hong Kong, but the UN has released a report and confirmed that horrible atrocities are happening and they may constitute international crimes. So, no big surprise there, but it's important we do point it out as we continue to decide how we are going to compete with slash interact with China. That is almost a perfect segue into the first uh, bit of policy suggestions that I wanted to mention. Senator Chris Murphy, who's big on in foreign policy, has important committee assignments in Congress um, in the Senate, um, wrote a great column in The Economist, and He mentioned some things that I just want to recap. I know I've mentioned some of these things in the past, but he's really nailed them down and talked about that, you know, that the 
possibility of a blockade is obviously something that's a big deal for an island that imports over 60% of its food and 98% of its energy. I didn't realize it was that high, but that's what he states, and I, I'm confident he has access to better intelligence than I do. He also mentions that in 1995, China's defense budget was about twice the size of Taiwan's. Today, it's 20 times larger. And he talked about how China is obviously implementing the largest military buildup of any country in the world. But Senator Murphy says that in the short term, the bigger threat isn't, you know, the exercises that are happening, but the non-military ways in which China is trying to undermine Taiwan. He says that every single day, the Taiwan's governing institutions and financial bodies are barraged with cyber attacks. He talked about a hacking activity that was months long against 80% of Taiwan's financial sector. And they're, he, he claims these attacks are designed to test and demonstrate China's capacity to crash Taiwan's economy. And that they also gather intelligence and take down telecommunica telecommunications so that they can weaken Taiwan's ability to defend itself and then it also talked about that China has you know just unbelievable propaganda campaigns against Taiwan so as he says the question we should be asking is a simple one what policy changes will make Taiwan more secure and decrease the likelihood of armed conflict with China first he says we shouldn't recognize Taiwan's independence as some have said because doing that would do little to help their defense in the short term it would also obviously uh, upset the Chinese government and that it would also you know, lead potentially to an attack or an invasion. And the last thing that the Taiwanese need is that, that they need time. And it doesn't make sense to do anything that might expedite an invasion. So uh, that's pretty practical there. I, I can't disagree with that at all. The suggestions he lays out are, first, continue selling weapons to Taiwan, but he takes that a step further, and he suggests even uh, authorizing Taiwan to receive military assistance uh, grants so that it would increase its purchasing power, and then specifically authorize large sale of weapons such as javelins, those are anti-tank weapons, stingers, which are anti-air, sea mines, and portable harpoon missiles, which those are anti-ship missiles, and those are all difficult for uh, China to target if there were to be an invasion. The second thing he mentions is that Congress could grant the president a new authority to uh, put into place what he calls crushing sanctions against d Chinese decision makers should they move against Taiwan. So as I understand it, and I might be wrong, but as I understand it, you would do these as like a preventative type thing that they're in place and as a, um, you know, just a, as incentive to remind them that, hey, if you guys do this, these will instantly be there and this is this is going to be some of the repercussions the third thing he mentions is that they we find ways to uh, counter chinese influence campaigns which are designed to undermine taiwan's democracy or coerce allies like lithuania from working with taiwan and he went a little bit into this article but how china will pressure com uh, countries that are trying to uh, align themselves or even interact with taiwan they immediately get pressure from china and from Chinese government officials. The next thing is he mentioned that the U.S. should push for Taiwan's representation in international bodies, which obviously, as he said, would counter China's attempts to isolate the island. But he ends by saying something that I thought was pretty good, which is that China has changed its approach to Taiwan and that American policy needs to evolve 
and he says that in an environment where the stakes are high and risk of miscalculation even higher, we have to make changes carefully and thoughtfully. And so I, I really liked that part because I think some of the things I've seen, I see thrown out by some analysts are, uh, in my opinion, too risky. Um, and so we need to be wise and cautious. But those were some things he threw out. Now I wanted to move into one other type of idea. This idea comes from Brad Thor. He's a thriller author who writes basically political thrillers about a spy. And um, he's, he does tons of research for his books and doing research for the most recent one that he's put out called Rising Tiger. He wrote a column for Fox News, which I have a link to. And in it, he lays out that essentially America should begin to move beyond the quadrilateral security dialogue of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States to a more robust official organization. And so he's basically calling this an Asian version of NATO. Um, and again, it would be Australia, India, which is obviously a huge country, Japan, and the United States. Uh, so he's just throwing out that idea. I don't know that I'd seen that anywhere else. Uh, he does write fiction, but a lot of times he'll throw out ideas just like Tom Clancy that a lot of times will play out. But I hadn't seen that idea anywhere. I have no idea how uh, China would react to such a thing. But I have no idea how much he's talked with um, various security folks and State Department folks. I know he does incredible research for his books. I don't know if some of them have thrown this out. I don't know if this is like a soft kind of test the water type things. Let's see how, let's just put it out there and see if people start talking about it, see if there's some uh, merit and not too much risk to doing such a thing. Not sure of any of that, but that was an idea throughout. It was, you know, definitely an idea that could, that should be looked at, I guess. And um, so I wanted to share it with you guys. Moving away from China, you may remember a few episodes ago, we had talked about how the Air Force had grounded its Ospreys because they found a, a risky clutch issue. And so they had grounded their entire fleet on which their fleet wasn't that large. They mainly use them for their special operations um, troops. But it came out shortly thereafter that obviously defense reporters reached out to the Marine Corps, which has way more Ospreys, and said, hey, are you guys not flying them? And of course, the Marine Corps said, hey, we've known about this issue and um, we found a way to counter it. And so they took what was an unsafe issue, and they found a way to counter it by hovering for a couple of seconds. And I went into the difference of how the Marine Corps sometimes, well, just, I didn't want, I didn't want to say the Marine Corps was less safe, but that they basically find a way to accomplish a mission with what they have. And, um, you know, it's mission accomplishment and then truth, troop welfare, as I described at that time. And that I wondered if the Air Force would find a way to actually fix the problem. Because the Air Force has a much larger budget, and in my opinion, a much larger pool with Congress and the Department of Defense. But it turns out the Air Force couldn't find a way to fix it. And so they're basically going to implement the same uh, steps that the Marine Corps is so that they can continue using the uh, uh, tilt-rotor uh, Osprey. So that was the update on that. So the Air Force didn't find a way to fix that clutch, and um, they're just going to do what the Marine Corps was doing. So... Apparently there was no easy easy fix. I had said I didn't think there was an easy fix since the Marine Corps has been dealing with it for about a decade. But apparently the Air Force found um, no way to fix it with their, their larger budget, at least in the short term. And so they're going to do what the Marine Corps is. 
doing and just use a, a hover initially to make sure that everything's working the way it's supposed to. So I wanted to follow up with that since I had talked about that a few episodes ago and I found that, you know, pretty interesting. All right, as always, guys, I never have enough time to record all the things I wanted to, but one of the things I'm going to start doing and I'm doing in this episode is there's a number of items that I call, just called bonus material that you can find from the website, which is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. And these are some really interesting stories that I wanted to get into the uh, episode but didn't. The first one is that Estonia's Cyber Command Chief is predicting that U- Ukraine can expel Russia uh, out of the Dnipro River area in about two months. Now, that's the area around uh, Kherson, which is the southern uh, recent counteroffensive that Ukraine is heading toward. And that he also predicts that Ukraine could liberate both the Crimea, and the, which is the Crimean Peninsula is what we often call it, and the eastern part of the country, Donbass, in months or years after that. So, just throwing that out. I'm not going to detail on that in a future episode, but wanted to throw that out. There's also a story about how Ukraine is using fake profiles of attractive women to trick uh, Russian soldiers into sharing their location, and then they attack their base. Really cool story. You can see a link to that. There's also a story about how our troops are being targeted by disinformation warfare. Um, It's from military.com. I'm not going to say too much about that, but uh, another good story worth going to look for or look at. There's another story about a group, a battalion of Chechens who are in Ukraine to fight Russia. Obviously, there are Chechen soldiers who have been going. uh, Chechnya is sort of kind of allied with Russia, but uh, Russia had invaded Chechnya, kind of installed a a leader, and they had been sending some troops to support the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, there are Russian or uh, Chechen fighters who have gone into Ukraine to help fight. You can read that story. And then a couple other good ones. Um, there's a story about Iran trying to steal some of the uh, U.S. Navy drone boats. Uh, I may cover that in a future episode, but you can catch that now by going to my Substack web webpage. And then two more, I think. One is about uh, India launching its uh, new aircraft carrier. If you were like me, I wasn't even aware India had an aircraft carrier yet. I may cover that in a future episode, but you can read that before then by going there. And finally, um, there's an article about from CNN about how Ukraine is using resistance warfare developed by the U.S. to fight back against Russia. I wanted to give a hat tip on that to Ada, who often sends me tips, which I really appreciate. I appreciate those from everyone, but uh, she seems to be about in the lead as far as tips. But So thank you, Ada, and that's a great article if you get a chance to go look at it. Again, all of these you can find from my website, stanormitchell.substack.com. When you first show up, it'll, be, uh, it'll ask you to enter your email address. You don't have to. Um, you can hit skip and let me read it first and just go straight there, or you can enter your email and sign up for you know, free notifications when I release podcasts twice a week. That'll make sure you don't miss any. So definitely want you guys to check that out if you get a second. And finally, let's get to the best part, which is the motivation and wisdom part of the episode. As I say every week, I'm just going to read these. These are some great folks to follow. So let's just get into it. The first one, don't dream your life, live your dream. That's a good one. 
Next one. What are you excited about today? Ooh, that's a good question. So, what are you excited about today? Think about that one. I want to have an answer for that one. Next one. Hard times will always reveal true friends. I think that's very true. Next one. You're only doing a disservice to yourself by thinking small. That's a good one. Next one. Your uniqueness is your greatest asset. It's another good one. Next one. Repetition makes reputation, and reputations make customers. That's pretty good. I'm going to read that one again. Repetition makes reputation, and reputation makes customers. That's a great one. Next one. Revenge is a complete waste of time and energy. If the person sucks, it'll eventually catch up to them. Move on and let reality do the work for you. Hey, that's pretty good. Next one. Good things are coming even when you can't see them yet. Another good one. Gotta stay optimistic, guys. Next one. Nothing is so exhausting as indecision, and nothing is so futile. I like that one. Just make a decision and go do it. Next one. Keep grinding. Your day is coming. Next one. When you speak, always speak with strong confidence. Watch the difference it makes. That was a great one. Next one. A goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. That's really good. I know a lot of people, we all got friends who are in day jobs that you can just see it. It's just kind of like suck the soul out of them. And they're just, they're living, but man, it's just, they're just kind of barely surviving. I like that though. A goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. We all have things that we should be chasing, don't we? All right. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, The View from the Front is a reader-supported publication. The best way to make this work sustainable and to help improve it is with a paid subscription. But at the same time, free ones are appreciated too. I've got a link into the, in the source notes on how you can subscribe. You can do that from our website, stanormitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanormitchell.substack.com. And you can subscribe to the show. That'll make sure you don't miss any. As a reminder, please be kind. Try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work to unite this country. Also, try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media, how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you have a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, reach out to them. Finally, and this especially goes to all my awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Please. Call that friend or family member. Do it for us all. We've already lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. And so I'm asking you to be brave once more. Show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member, someone who can help. Uh, with that, I appreciate each and every one of you. Every tweet, every share, every email, etc. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. And I love each and every one of you all out there. So please join me again in our next episode. Stay safe until then. Thanks again, everyone. You guys are the best. As always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. I think you'll enjoy them. Highly rated. They sell pretty well. And with that, I'm out.